to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to be carrying on. Last week I was in Matthew 10 and looked at that list of the 12 apostles and started going through those names and what the Bible tells us about each of those men. In many cases, those 12 apostles, there's very, very little about who they were, about what they'd said or done or anything. Uh, individually, most of them are very obscure. Um, there's just a few of those 12 do stand them. There's more information about them. And Emily asked me last week if I had some information on the rest that I didn't get to. We stopped for time sake last week, and uh, I, I did have more on each one, and this week I kind of looked at uh, Thomas, and so this week I'm just going to focus on him and starting in verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were with him, Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me, any other signs, truly, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life in his name. Again, Lord, as we look at this passage and we look at the person of Thomas this morning, let's pray that you would guide my thoughts and I pray that you would learn from him and from the things that we can look at in this story this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thomas, of course, we typically know him as Doubting Thomas, and not exactly a glorifying name that we'd want to be known by. But that is typically how we remember Thomas, is by doubting. And this is the story where we get that from, where he, he doubted about Christ being risen, or that the other apostles had seen him. And so he was going to require this physical evidence to prove before he would believe. And so we're often quite critical of Thomas, but we're going to look at a couple other passages of, of him and try to see a different side of Thomas, maybe see a more positive side of him. So if you want to turn to John chapter 11, I'm going to read a fair bit of the passage there and we'll get that story and we'll carry on from there. So John chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 1. <coughs> It says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard therefore that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go to, unto Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Obeyed Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then saith Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Verse 16 says, Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto the, his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And so, that last sentence doesn't sound like a man of doubt, a man who is fearful of believing in Christ, and fearful of following Christ. Uh, I wouldn't call him an optimist, but he's willing to die for what he believes in. He says to the other disciples in verse 16, let us go also, that we may die with him. Because if you remember in an earlier verse, the disciples were fearful to go because the Jews were actually trying to kill Jesus. 
last time he was in that area. And so to them, going there for what is now a funeral just didn't make a lot of sense. But Thomas is willing. How often in our lives do we resist doing something that we know we should do, but we're scared, we're fearful of the consequences of doing that thing. Found a story, um, I can't say the guy's name, unfortunately, but it says during his years as premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and atrocities of Joseph Stalin. Once, as he censured Stalin in a public meeting, Khrushchev was interrupted by a shout from a heckler in the audience. You were one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Who said that? For Khrushchev. An agonizing silence followed as nobody in the room dared to move a muscle. Then Khrushchev replied quietly, now you We're all brave <laughs> when it's not us on the line, but when it comes to actually standing out from the crowd, our bravery tends to disappear. When there's a possible consequence to our life, our, our bravery tends to disappear. It's easy for us to be critical of others when we see it in a situation like that, where why didn't you do this or that? Things might be having to go to court, maybe facing a divorce or a separation. Maybe it's just having to face the truth, having to admit to ourselves that this is actually taking place. And we're fearful to confront those things. There's many, countless other examples in life where we could do the right thing. But it's fear. It's this unknown consequence where some change might take place in my life. Something uncomfortable, something I don't want to deal with might come up. And so we just don't do the things that we really ought to be doing. And in this case, in John, this friend of 
first and then have died. And the right thing to do is simply to go and comfort that family. But the disciples were fearful. And they didn't want to go. But it's Thomas. It's doting Thomas, right? This doesn't sound like doting Thomas. This is Thomas. Thomas the brave. <laughs> Thomas the bold. He's ready. He's willing to take a risk in his own life to go and provide comfort to these friends of Jesus. That's different. Why don't we remember Thomas for that? <laughs> Why do we remember his doubt, his moment of weakness? That doesn't define his character. That's not who he was. But that's what we tend to characterize him as. What it would be like if and I had some moment in our life where we were doubtful, where we were fearful, or just made some lapse in character judgment, and we did something wrong, we didn't do what we should have done, and that's the one thing in our life that everybody remembers, remembers us for. Why do we let that one himself to Thomas. In verse 27 he says, Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but you. Jesus didn't criticize him. He doesn't let go that moment of unbelief. He deals with it. That's not the main issue. He enters that room. He walks over to Thomas. And Thomas hasn't said anything. But Jesus comes right up to him and presents himself for him to do the very thing that he said he needed to do to believe. He says, here, put your hand in my finger. Put your hand in my side. Heal me. Touch me. And believe. I don't think response is immediate in what we have recorded. Verse 28 says, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. What a response. He didn't touch. He didn't stick his hand in his side. He just 
my Lord and my God. He, he knew who Christ was. He needed it. And he just believed it and proclaimed it. So I remember that about Thomas. <laughs> Thomas isn't the only person who ever had a moment of doubt or a moment, a weak moment where he didn't do the right thing or didn't say the right thing. If we keep reading in the following chapter, we're going to read this passage. Um, start reading verse 1 and, and carry on. It says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together time, sorry, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Thomas was with them. Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. And they say unto him, We also will go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast out for him. Now they were not able to draw for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat under him, for he was naked, and had cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with the fishes. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. And Simon Peter went up, and drew the net to the land, full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all, there were so many, yet not was the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. Now, this is now the third time that Jesus shows off to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. We see this story. Jesus has shown himself to the disciples twice now. While they've been in a locked room, he's shown them his hands and his side. He presented himself alive, able to touch and And now, in the very next passage, and I believe it gave a time frame, I think it's just another eight days or something like that, it's within another week. This isn't a long period of time, but they've already forgotten those two instances where Jesus came and presented himself. He breathed on them and gave them the Holy Ghost. He gave them a job to do go and preach. But here they are. They've gone fishing. They've forgotten what Jesus has told them to do. They've forgotten about the risen Savior. 
because they don't know what else to do with themselves at that moment. And not only have they gone fishing, but when Jesus shows up and starts talking to them, and finally John recognizes Jesus for who he is, and he has to go to Peter. Jesus, it's on board. What does it say Peter does? He goes and grabs a coat and wraps it around himself because he's naked. Not only did he just go fishing, but like he's straight back to the carnal lifestyle that he was living prior to that. That's kind of the way I, I see that. And he's ashamed. He needs to grab a coat and cover himself because he believes that he's dressed inappropriately. That's not what we remember Peter for. That's not Peter the naked. That's not how we refer to him. But we have Billy Thumb. Why? He's not the only one that had a moment of doubt, a moment of weakness in his life. where this to us, this is a very simple passage. 
But to the disciples, this was very confusing, the statement that Jesus was making. And Thomas is the one who boldly asked the question, takes the risk of sounding stupid here, being the one that doesn't get it. He takes that risk. He says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? But for us, try to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples at that time to try to understand why this very simple statement from Jesus is so hard for them to comprehend. If you think about, for one, a very simple time in terms of the technology, <laughs> life is very basic. It's just a matter of working to make a living to sustain yourself with food, clothes, place to live. Most work was either farming, actually growing food to, to eat, or maybe a trade, like remember Joseph, Jesus' stepfather is a carpenter, and so he would work and make things for others and trade that for food and clothing things like that. And so just a very simple time, not, when I say simple, it doesn't mean it's easy. Very hard work, but it's not complicated. We tend to complicate life here. But this is the time that we're living in. Transportation was either horseback or by foot. And what we see in Jesus and his disciples, most of his travel is by foot. We try to put ourselves into that time period. Jesus comes along, he starts teaching new ways of understanding the Bible. He starts performing miracles. He starts calling God his Father. And as he's going about doing this, he's gathered this large following of people. And these people are from all around the area, all the towns around the boat. And they're, they're there, largely because of the miracles, the healing that he's been doing, casting out of devils. But there's this few, these 12, that Jesus has called to be close to him, to stay with him throughout his entire ministry. And he starts to teach them, to train them, preparing them to carry on his mission after he's gone. And it's this small group of followers They've left their homes, they've left their jobs, they've left their families to follow Jesus. Can you imagine what these guys' families said or thought? Why are you, remember John and James, their father has this, they're working with or for their father, this fishing business. They've got other employees working for them. Is it, what did their father say? What did their father think of them walking away from this work, this good living that they've been making? You can imagine what some of our families would say to us. I've heard some, some of those things myself as I've walked away from a good job to go and do ministry. But that's what these guys committed to. 
these guys don't understand all of what we know about Jesus yet. They just know that he's different. He has the words of life. But they think the Messiah, their understanding of the Messiah, is that he's going to redeem Israel. He's going to free Israel from the Roman rule. They think he's going to establish them as a sovereign nation. He's going to come and rule and reign as a king. He's not presenting himself that way very, very much. And so when he starts talking like this, they're not following. They don't quite compute what's going on there. Now, it's interesting. Jesus says, Verse 4, he says, Whither I go, you know, and the way, you know. This question, he tells them, You know where I'm going, and you know the way. Yet these guys are all sitting there, like, No, we don't. I don't think I know where you're going. I don't think I know the way. But Jesus is trying to get what's in their hearts all the way up into their head, get them to understand who he really is. And so Thomas speaks up. He's the only one that's bold enough to admit that he can't figure this out. And that what Jesus says that you know, I, I really don't think I do. I don't, I don't get it, Jesus. You need to clarify that a little bit. I don't know the way. I don't know where you're going. And Jesus doesn't criticize. Again, with Thomas, Jesus doesn't criticize him for asking this question. He just answers. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Look at this statement by Jesus. It doesn't give that much clarification, though. He doesn't really spell it right out. But he says, I am the way. And then he says, no man cometh unto the Father, but by me. In that previous verse, when he started, it says, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. So now, it's just that subtle change from my Father to the Father. He's clarifying and yet not spelling it right out. Um, in our Bible study, we've talked about this a few times. It's come up, and this week we mentioned again. The Bible says some things sometimes that in the passage we looked at in Timothy, and we might look at it next week again. But there was a statement at the beginning of the chapter, and then halfway through the chapter, there's almost a completely contradicting statement. And how is this possible? How can I do both things? But God gives us these things and says, there's a time when this is the answer. And there's a time when this is the answer. He tells us that. He doesn't spell out, in this circumstance, this is what you do. And in this circumstance, this is what you do. You have to think. You have to be able to put these things together and reason and follow the wisdom that God gives you using 
still expects him to finish. He wants him to put together that the Father, my Father, is actually God. He wants you to know that it's God we're talking about, not just his earthly father. He's not talking about this carpenter named Joseph, who's, we don't even know where Joseph is at this time. I'm, I assume he's passed away. He's never mentioned in Jesus' adult life. Only his mother, Mary, is. So he's not talking about this carpenter named Joseph and how to get to his house and that he's building these mansions for these guys. This doesn't make sense, does it? And so he needs to point them to this. No, this, we're not talking earthly stuff here. We're talking spiritual, heavenly things. This is God the Father that I'm referring to, and I am the way. And so he clarifies that. You know, Thomas wasn't the only one that didn't understand, though. Jesus gave that clarification, and then Philip speaks up and starts asking again. He says, Lord, show us the Father. He's still, there's still questions. There's still not quite understanding exactly who it is that Jesus is. But they're starting to put it together. So I just look at Thomas in this situation was willing to put himself over there. Willing to look We've all heard the statement, there's no such thing as a stupid question, just stupid answers. Well, having taught lots of people different things, I disagree with that statement. I've heard some stupid questions. <laughs> but but in, Jesus didn't, didn't scoff at him for this, what we think might be a stupid question. We, we can see so clearly so clearly that he's talking about a home in heaven and that Jesus himself is making the way that we can be together with God in heaven. We, we understand that and he's starting to get that across to the disciples. They don't have the advantage that we have of seeing the whole picture yet. There's so many things that are left kind of obscure to them. And so they're learning and they're growing through this time. And Jesus is very patient with them. But we should be like Thomas. Use Thomas as a positive example. When we have a weak moment, when we're presented with the truth, we have that moment of doubt. And God gives us an opportunity to redeem ourselves in that moment. He responds, my Lord and my God. Let's respond in the way that Thomas responded. Let's be bold in the way that Thomas says, let's go and die with him if that's what it's going to take. Let's take a risk and ask that stupid question when we don't understand. Use Thomas as a positive example. He is a great example to us in so many ways. And yet, the Bible willingly shows us his moment of weakness so that we can relate to who he is, to his character. We're weak people, and the disciples were weak and flawed people, just like us. He's our, our example of who to follow, how to live our lives.
Father, again, we just want to thank you for the example that Thomas is and the positive things that we can see in his character as we see him cropping up these few times through Scripture and just, just holding the story in so many ways. And so, Father, we know that you forgave his moment of doubt and that you used that for him to, to grow in boldness for you. Thomas as a positive example of how to be bold.